In the late 19th century, one place that separation of church and state definitely did not apply was in United States Indian policy. The Bureau of Indian Affairs wanted Indians to assimilate into white American culture, and they figured the best way to do that was to spread Protestant Christianity. But to make Indians into good Protestants, the BIA had to stamp out indigenous spiritual practices. One of these was dancing. And in the early 1920s, the commissioner of Indian Affairs, Charles Burke, decided to crack down. He sent a letter to the superintendents of all Indian reservations, asking them to stop, quote, so-called religious ceremonies involving dancing. I regard such restriction as applicable to any dance which involves acts of self-torture, immoral relations between the sexes, the reckless giving away of property, the use of injurious drugs or intoxicants, in fact, any disorderly or plainly excessive... The Bureau soon ran into resistance, especially from the southwestern Pueblo tribes. I asked Yale Divinity School historian Tisa Wenger to walk me through the Pueblo reaction to the dancing ban... Native people were very upset, and they said, this is not accurate. This is not what our dances do. Our dances are good for our people. Our dances are kind of celebration of our traditions. We are continuing the ways of our forefathers. And so for that reason, it became important for them to find a way to defend them against these attacks that were not only coming from the government agents, um, there was a whole barrage of negative publicity all across, you know, this was debated in newspapers and national news magazines. And they had also become kind of a favorite cause of some of the cultural anthropologists and cultural modernist artists and writers of the period. There was an well, artist you know, colony. If, you, if you've won over the cultural anthropologists, you've, you know, You've got it made, right? <laughs> right, Perhaps exactly. one of the most powerful interest groups in America, the cultural anthropologists. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but they certainly had some influence. And um, as an increasing amount of influence in this period in the 1920s. And they're the ones who initially said, look, this is a real religious freedom issue. And they wrote articles in Survey Magazine. Now, was it their religion? Is this the first time that they played the religion card? Um, Native Americans across the more generally had for a very long time been playing the religion card, as you put it, and been saying um, these um, bans on our dances are a violation of religious freedom. Um, The Pueblo Indians are a little bit different case because they had been colonized by Spain and become Catholic. And as a kind of accommodation with the Franciscan missionaries, it worked for them to say Catholicism is our religion and these traditions are our customs. But now, under this sort of new regime (laughs) and new U.S. policies, that no longer worked. And because of the framework of the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment, now framing them as religion and making this religious freedom argument becomes very important and very effective. But did they make their claims, and now I'm talking about the Pueblos and their uh, supporters, did they make their claims in constitutional terms? Did they speak in that language? Yeah. So this was, I'm going to read an example of the language that they used. Um, This was a letter that was written by the All Pueblo Council on April 9th, 1923. 
One way of worshiping our God is by dancing and singing, praying and fasting. You know better than we do that the Constitution of these United States gives the right and liberty to all people to worship according to the dictates of their own conscience. And then they refer, you know, again to the First Amendment, saying that this circular um, is illegitimate and should not be enforced and that they are going to continue their dances and they're not going to obey this directive. So what happens? Who wins? Um, (laughs) Yes, this worked for the Pueblo Indians at the time. Um, Essentially, it became such a huge... um, public relations nightmare for the government, partly because of these cultural modernist allies who had the the contacts and the media relations savvy to put out this cry um, nationwide, the government is suppressing Indians' religious freedom. And then they publicized the statements from the Pueblo Indians you know, criticizing the government for violating its own constitutional principles of Mm -hmm. religious freedom, um, the government backed down. I mean, Commissioner Burke said, you know, we really can't enforce this in the Pueblos, and the agents on those reservations backed down because it had become such a public relations issue. Is that the end of the story? That is not the end of the story. The government officials were accusing the the Pueblo Indians of violating the separation of church and state in their structures of their tribal governments um, because tribal governments were run by leaders who were known by the term cacique. They were kind of behind-the-scenes leaders and were also the leaders of the ceremonial life. And so that was attacked by government officials and assimilationists as a theocratic system. And it's ironic, isn't it? Because as we were talking about at the beginning, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is working closely with Christian missionaries. So that can appear as a violation of separation of church and state on the part of the U.S. government. At the same time, these government agents are saying to the Pueblo tribes, you all need to modernize your systems and implement separation of church and state and end your theocratic tribal governments. So is it fair to say that by introducing uh, the constitutional defense of religion, uh, the Pueblos inadvertently undermined some of the traditional ways in which religion and governance had been blurred in in their way of life? Yes, that's right. But I don't quite like the way that you said that. Good, because, then you say, say it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> because it assumes that there are separate spheres of religion and yes. government. And I think that way of separating out our world is so deeply ingrained in our culture that it's hard to conceive of different ways of... But I think you know a better way to say that might be that modern distinctions between religion and and government are forced on them. That conversation with Tisa Wenger was recorded in 2013. She's a historian at Yale Divinity School and the author of We Have a Religion, the 1920s Pueblo Indian Dance Controversy and American Religious Freedom 